0: Hey everyone, welcome to the Palladium Podcast. This is your host, Alex Gelland, and today I'm joined by our managing editor, Ash Milton, whose article, The Apostle of the French Revolution, takes a look into the life of the uh, Abbe Henri Gregoire, who was a revolutionary priest who spearheaded the revolution, and we'll basically be taking a look at that. So welcome, Ash. Thank you. I'm looking forward to talking about it. Hi, everyone from Vienna. Yes, we are beautiful Vienna. Yes, we were in Vienna together, uh, the heart of counter revolution, and uh, I guess let's just get started. So, hmm. uh, who was the Abbe Henri Guguerash, and when was he born, and what kind of surroundings did he find himself in at the time he was young and? Maybe encountering revolutionary ideas for the first time.
1: Yeah, I'll uh, I'll sort of do a short overview because uh, people can read the piece. Um, but Henri Gregoire uh, was a he was a French priest, so that the term "abbé" does refer to a priest. Uh, he's he's low born. He's from a town called Vého uh, and spends a lot of his early life in Lorraine, um, in the eastern regions of France, uh, near somewhat to the German border uh and he he's from uh you know kind of a a working family but is he's a smart kid he manages to work his way uh up he he gets patronage at at key stages of his education and he ends up a priest uh, as a fairly young man and as a priest he's he's an interesting figure so i'll uh, you know why did i cover him at all as we'll see gregoire is an enigmatic person I found his personality, I found him as a person to be a, a very strange, contradictory, somewhat captivating figure. Um, you know, he's he's very, very pious as a Catholic. It's, you know, it's very common at this time for people to choose clerical careers kind of out of expediency, and we see that with people like Talleyrand, and with the Abbe Sayez, and other prominent figures in the revolution, they become clerics out of careerism. Gregoire is not like this. Gregoire is a, a very devout, very pious Christian. He, he takes, you know, risks to his own life rather than renounce his religion. A lot of his thinking derives from his religion. Um, we can maybe talk about that in a bit. But he's also a staunch revolutionary. And in fact, he becomes part of the radical end of the revolution. He's a Jacobin. Uh, he's p- part of the factions associated with Robespierre and Saint-Just and the Terror. Uh, and he's somewhat—he's responsible conceptually for a lot of the most radical moves in the revolution. How does he get there? It's through a number of circles that we can broadly call enlightened society. Yeah. So, so tell, right? yeah. Tell
0: us about the uh, sort of intellectual circles he found himself in that were <clears throat> basically fomenting these ideas mm-hmm. to begin with. Who was he? What kind of circles was he running in that led into these ideas?
1: Yeah, so you kind of have to think about the nature of the Enlightenment to answer this question, right? There's not one homogenous project. What there is is actually something more like a social fabric. And uh, it it stretches across Europe. It even touches the New World, especially in the United States. Um, And you have what, what they called even at the time a republic of letters, uh, people in different countries trading ideas you have certain prominent minds and writers like the philosophes so that's people like Voltaire people like Rousseau these very prominent thinkers that kind of everyone starts to take from and discuss uh, you you have projects that come out of this fabric so Diderot's encyclopedia and these are like uh, social proofs in a way
0: for basically how right many...
1: right these are I'd say what what kind of unifies it is the sense that you know, society has been in a long period of stagnation. Um, there's a sense that, you know, the old order, sometimes religion, although not always, is is part of that. And right at the present time, right, for these guys, uh, there is a renewal of philosophy. There's the so-called new learning going on. There's advances in science and mathematics. Uh, and this is kind of seen as an opportunity in some vague sense for human reason and human learning to transform society. And in fact, in, for a lot of the most prominent Enlightenment thinkers like Voltaire, that's not actually political revolution. In fact, they usually see the, the absolutist kings as like, we need to get these guys on board, they're the vehicles mm-hmm. for this transformation. Um, however, it is a transformation of society, and, and they're generally, you know, they, they see the Middle Ages and even maybe, you know, parts of the Renaissance as still part of a decline, uh, and and they do all believe that a radical transformation of society has to happen. It's going to be top down, uh, but the result is going to be a sort of new type of human being who's animated by the public spirit, by the interests of society and not just his own private interests. He's educated, he operates based on reason. And uh, is is sort of a, a, a broad open-minded, generous personality. So there's all these social you know norms in these circles that develop that kind of become part of the worldview. and that's why I think that the you can't talk so much about a, a, a unified intellectual enlightenment. you actually have to look at it as a social community. Yes, and
0: it's while he's in these social communities that there were uh, intellectual projects like essay contests that would have been taking public submissions for you know different kinds of social issues and questions i think uh, you know catherine the great in russia famously took some uh, essay submissions from voltaire and so on and it was uh actually in one of these essay contests that uh, henry gregoire kind of formulated some of his first major revolutionary ideas and uh sort of mapped out how he would uh go about the transformation of society right yeah so
1: you, you, the societies he runs, and so the the one that I ended up focusing more on is uh, the SPS. So, in English, the name of it was the Society of the the sorry. The name in English translates into something like the Society of Philanthropists of Strasbourg, the Philanthropic Society of Strasbourg. Philanthropist in this case means effectively public-spirited, educated, generally upper-class men. Uh, It's sort of paramasonic, but um, Gregoire and and especially a lot of Catholics aren't really comfortable joining actual Masonic lodges So these societies exist as a way to gain a broader audience and you're right essay contests um, private forums salons, these are the places that the actual social fabric a lot of the Enlightenment discourse is happening in and so for Gregoire he, he's entering a lot of these contests, and uh, it's, you know, one of these contests in particular occurs when Louis grants uh, greater toleration for non-Catholics in France. This is Louis XVI, and one of the groups that benefits is French Jews. And so Gregoire enters a contest focused on the question of, okay, so we, we see that there, there seems to be the separation between France and between France's Jews, they, they, a lot of them still live in in ghettos. They live in separation. They're poorer. There's this hostility, right, between the local population, which sort of sees Jews as moneylenders, and and you know they have all these 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 sort of tropes. There's a lot of there's very low trust. Jews, by both Jews themselves, by friends of the Jewish community, and by enemies of the Jewish community, are seen as this kind of alien, unassimilated presence in France, and so. There, there is this kind of broad sense that this needs to be resolved. Um, now, in those circles, you know, there are both anti- and pro-Jewish lines that are socially acceptable. And, and Gregoire ends up writing an essay, uh, which I discuss in the piece, in which he proposes uh, that the position of the Jews is basically the result of exclusion and persecution. However, the result of that is still that a transformation of French-Jewish society has to happen. For them to assimilate into the nation
0: and so what does regeneration look like exactly because this is something that becomes a sort of common strand of thought throughout his career right so this term regeneration is kind of the heart of the the piece in
1: a sense like it's 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 a strange concept and i sort of struggled with how to really define it they like i'll give the the initial way that that grégoire talks about it is you know you have a society that you could describe as sick and that's on the political level. It's on the level of social norms. It's on the level of morality. Even religion, even physical bodies are sick. You know, so in this essay, you know, in, in the essay, he sort of talks about how even uh, the, the the physical health of, of French Jews is uh, stagnant because of you know life life in these the, the poor communities in which a lot of them live. And so what he effectively proposes is that a sick body must be restored to health. Now, that's, um, it's a somewhat organic way of thinking about society. But the, you know, the the way that he proposes this happens is not some kind of vague organic process at all. He thinks that political action can basically achieve uh, the restoration to health in all these domains of a population, that has become socially sick um, and the what i would basically describe regeneration as is the return to health of a sick society um, and you know the, the language gregor himself uses to describe that process kind of varies a bit sometimes it's a very religious language or a moral language sometimes it's a political language that that would be more familiar to us right it's very ideological it talks about national unity and unity of language and these kinds of things um, so Grégoire himself kind of, he, he varies, but I, I think that that's actually becomes a strength of this, this idea that he proposes that becomes the motivating force in a lot of his work. So what is regeneration? It is the restoration to health of a sick society, and fundamentally that is the process he proposes first for French Jews, but then later for all of France itself, because as we've said in the Enlightenment, the entire civilization is sick and stagnant and decadent, and the restoration to health has to actually encompass the whole civilization. So Gregoire kind of you know rejects that the rest of society is even that healthy. And even in his essay, he has these lines where he sort of says that he fears for those Jews who actually start assimilating because what if they they simply trade the shortcomings of you know French Jewish society for those of the French nation itself? And so you know even even early on, he's kind of suspecting that it's not enough um, to focus on French Jews, you have to focus on the country.
0: Yeah, so my understanding of regeneration too, so it's like there's like a few primary vehicles through which it's accomplished. There's like kind of like this uh, uh, unification of culture that is primarily done through unification of dialect and language. And then there's also the kind of this uh, uh, scientific (coughs) management of society in some way, in terms of like economic production. Through, Through agriculture, you're also looking at unification of like weights and and measurements right and this is something that ends up being uh invoked or indirectly or directly through by revolutionaries of the future too even uh, in israel isn't this right yeah i mean you know
1: part of the question here ends up being what does a healthy society actually look like right and I think that that's something that Gregoire gets burned by himself because, he, as we'll see, as the French Revolution unfolds, it turns out people actually have much more different views on what a healthy society is than Gregoire seemed to assume. I mean, as a religious as a member of what we could call the religious Enlightenment, you know, the 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 part of the enlightened societies that was still Christian and saw Christianity as Uh, Force for enlightenment if it if it maybe was reformed in certain ways Um, As a member of that subset uh, He thinks that the healthy society is going to be pious. It is going to be religious even though it will also be You know, it will be industrious. Yeah, the economic barriers to production will be removed So there'll be a material development of the country there is going to be a unification of language that people can communicate with each other Um, so, you know, France stops being this kind of conceptual thing that the state rules over and becomes this actual kind of conscious reality, right, a living body. It's a political regeneration in that, you know, French, uh, I mean, common to all of Europe, I guess, but especially in France, the way that uh, state, the state machine operated was based on a lot of very personal interests, you know, what we would now call bribery, but at that point was more seen as like payments for political services, that was very common. And there was a sense that, you know, personal interest ruled over things. So for him, there's this question of how do you get people to operate in terms of like public service, public virtue, or, you know, virtus, the Romans would have called it. Um, And, you know, all these guys are looking at Greek and Roman history. They're very inspired by it. And Mm -hmm. they see them as these, you know, heroic figures that are kind of animated by, you know, the glories of their their states, their societies. How can France do that? So the way that you answer those questions ends up going into what does the healthy society look like? And so, yeah, for Gregoire... Um, things like economic barriers are pretty simple. You can remove those legally and then you have to kind of control the maybe social conflicts that happen. Language can be unified by the state creating schools in which French is the language of education, of teaching. Uh, you can also, you know, make government edicts get issued in French. So there, there's all these mechanisms that power can use in order to unify language. The the question of moral regeneration is actually the thing that he's often the most interested in. Mm-hmm. And that's also the thing that gives him the most trouble over his lifetime, because he does see the church as the ultimately the force for moral regeneration, but not necessarily, you know, what they then call the princes of the church, right? He's a, so so Gregoire is a member of these kind of reforming currents of lower clergy, of priests and religious in the church um, so that
0: that's actually an interesting uh intersection with like say the history of the revolution because the three states are called for a meeting about the, the future of the uh french tax system if i'm not mistaken and it's actually the lower clergy that makes up a lot of the second estate that ends up defecting to join the uh the third
1: clergy and aristocracy okay like, so, so this is um yeah, so you're right. The the there's this event that happens where you know for Luke, King Louis the Sixteenth, his great mission is to figure out how how to save the French state from bankruptcy, and you know the nobles and clergy in particular had been exempted from a lot of taxes over the years, and so the tax burden usually fell on the third estate, right, the commoners. Mm-hmm but louis wanted the nobility in particular to start paying more of the burden and so it starts as this very kind of you know it's controversial but it seems mundane in some ways it's a question of taxes uh and and so he calls the three estates and what ends up happening i go into more detail in the piece about this but what ends up happening is that um the commons and large sections of the nobles and the clergy are actually dominated by men who have grown up who have know imbibe the culture of the enlightened societies mm-hmm. of reform and they see an opportunity and it, it's from the get-go like right? the moment this is called uh that the call goes out for elections and for for representatives it's very clear that like no one sees this as like this is just going to be a, a debate about taxes uh people are coming with with just this sense something is about to happen and so uh, you know what, what ends up happening eventually pretty quickly is that the commons are pissed that they're you know getting kind of sidelined uh by the nobility and the clergy uh, because each of these estates only gets one collective vote essentially yes, right so the third
0: estate has like twice that yeah delegates, so, but right. the third estate
1: has twice the delegates and rep- and and more importantly as far as they're concerned they represent the bulk of the country right but the and but even with that they might have been outmaneuvered except the clergy has a bunch of uh, these reformists in it mm-hmm. who are sympathetic, and the nobility even has a bunch of sympathizers. So the, the Duke d'Orlans, the, the, the king's cousin, is a reformist. The um, Lafayette is a member of the nobility, right? He's just come back from the American Revolution. Uh, you have all these, these, these nobles who are reformists, and you even have some nobles who decide they're just going to get elected into the third estate uh, entirely, right? And so... I think, you know, this is something like popular narratives of of this revolution is that it's sort of this bottom up thing. But I mean, even within the commons, right, you know, these aren't peasants and farmers getting elected to the commons, right? These are uh generally fairly wealthy people these are people with people, business yeah, connections from bourgeois backgrounds yeah well yeah. and people who have been with the clergy and nobles in societies like the sps exactly. these are they're friends with each other
0: so there's yeah. like a long period of, of like intellectual gestation where these ideas are being played out in salons and so on in this private sector right. where there's a social proof for entry and then it's only after this very long period that it sort of becomes a political question Yes, Once they're presented the, opportunity. the
1: the opportunity is now here, and and even when this is called, I mean, what I you know, what the majority of these people sort of seem like they're in favor of is something like a constitutional monarchy. So uh, the idea of a constitution for France is important for them, and they a lot of them actually look at Britain as a sort of example of the kind of state that they want. They want a a state where you have more representation. Uh, for across the country and where the monarch is more limited in powers so it's you know they do think of the state as a republic but more in the classical sense where there is still this monarch with a role to play that's the center of the state and you know even when when what we now see is like very revolutionary documents get promulgated like the declaration of the rights of man Mm -hmm. that is still all happening uh under a monarchic state um and you know, what ends up happening with the assemblies is that the commons declare themselves the assembly for the whole nation. They call on the others to join them. Many of them do. And so now instead of three estates representing this kind of older model of French society, you now have one unified assembly claiming to speak for the whole nation, still technically under the king, but, you know, now now the radicalization starts. So there's,
0: there's actually like a nice little picture of your bar right in the center. Of yes. Yeah.
1: So there's this this event called the tennis court oath where the, the commons get kind of like barred from meeting in their hall. They go to a nearby tennis court and they've called on, you know, the other estates to join them. And so Gregoire from the and a bunch of clergy and a bunch of the nobles, they all come to this tennis court and they take an oath that they're basically gonna not disband until France has a constitution. And, you know, Gregoire is, I believe, one of the first clergy members to take the oath. And so, you know, one of the famous images that comes out of that is this painting of Gregoire in the center, um, bringing together, I, I believe the two people are, one is actually a, a monk, and the other is a Protestant commoner, mm. and so, you know, it's this very patriotic, like, we're putting aside class, religion, we're focused on the nation.
0: What was Grégoire's relationship with, like, Protestant Christians in France as a Catholic mm. priest? Because, you know, as you were saying, he's, he was very devout, he says to preach the constitution in one hand and the gospel in the other, mm-hmm. so how does, as his career evolve like, How exactly do his religious affiliations clash with pre-existing social fabrics that exist in France, and then also this new revolutionary one?
1: Yeah, so he has, I mean, from early on, a lot of his collaborators are Protestants. He's friends with, you know, prominent Protestant performers as well. Um, People kind of underestimate, I think, the amount of Protestants that still lived in France at this time. Mm -hmm. Um, Louis XIV, the Sun King, like, you know, about, at this point, nearly 100 years before, had acted to expel a lot of the Protestants, because Protestantism had been fairly popular, especially among the aristocrats, so he saw it as a threat. Uh, But under the 16th Louis, toleration was getting extended. Mm -hmm. And, And, you know, especially in the East, where Grégoire was in Lorraine, Al- it's near Alsace. You have a lot of Germans, uh, and a lot of them are Protestants. And so you you do have a lot of Protestants there. Um, Gregoire is often trying to convert his Protestant friends. So mm-hmm. he is, uh, you know, his Catholicism is not sort of entirely ecumenical, right? He he thinks that France should be Catholic, um, and and that all humans, in fact, should be Catholic. And so he he tries he's always trying to convert his his sort of protestant contemporaries and peers um and when it but when it comes to the political project um he's very much on the side of religious liberty effectively um he 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 sees the job of the church to convert people without coercion for the most part Mm -hmm. although you know, even on this, he kind of goes back and forth. So there's key, po- you know, there's points where he proposes that maybe the state can, like, compel people, you know, if you can compel education, which he believes you can do, part of that could be religious education. So, you know, because people might be unwilling to learn about Catholicism in their on their own. So if you, if you make it part of the educational program, then they have to be exposed to it. And he, you know, th- this is kind of his... Uh, what you could actually see is sort of optimism, he actually thinks that if most people are exposed to kind of, like, enlightened Christianity, that yeah, they'll convert, because it's obviously, like, great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, yeah and, and in a way, I think that he, part of his disillusionment, both with Christianity and with his vision of the revolution, is that he quickly finds out that, like, no, in fact, people don't just convert mm-hmm. by the sheer, like, overwhelming... Uh, goodness and moral righteousness yeah. of your project And so, so
0: I think in your article you cover how this is this disillusionment is something that he kind of encounters during these military campaigns he's assigned to in Italy but before we get into those there I was reminded by something we were kind of talking about before we went on air which was that this Catholicism that he kind of practiced at the same time he was part of this revolutionary movement was in a sense revolutionary for its time, the and Catholicism Mm -hmm. was uh, kind of meshed very well to begin with with his ideas.
1: Yeah, I I think that this is something that's probably under discussed, I mean, not just for Gregoire, but I think I probably for the Enlightenment in a way and for, uh, you know, some of these revolutions like the French one. Um, Like there's a lot of work you could theoretically do here, but basically, The Catholicism of this period, right? So after, you have to kind of go a little bit into the past for this, but after the Protestant Reformation, the Catholic Church has the Council of Trent. From that comes what we now call Tridentine Catholicism. And what characterizes Tridentine Catholicism is a massive centralization and standardization of church power. So, you know, before a lot of priests are not that well educated, a lot of them are locally trained, it's very hard to enforce discipline. Mm -hmm. And the The sort of higher clergy of the church see this as one of the causes of corruption that had led to the Reformation. And so after Trent, there's a centralization of education. Uh, There's much more regularized ways to discipline clergy. And so I think that centralization... Uh, Creates a new culture within the church, both for clergy and for lay people. For lay people, it's that a lot of the church's rituals and and liturgies, right, the church services, become standardized. A lot of older form, you know, there had been some variety in local uses before. uh, After the Council of Trent, uh, a a fairly uniform rite is imposed uh, across, you know, the the Western Roman Church, um, although not the Eastern churches. Uh, And apart from certain very old local uses, most Catholics are now using this standardized Tridentine uh, Roman rite of the mass. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, what Gregoire is growing up in is a Catholicism that's already kind of been transformative in a way that was top down, in a way that was centralizing, in a way that imposed ritual and, and theological language, in a way that also increased the power of the center right yes. in this case rome mm-hmm. at the expense of not just local bishops but you know you, you had um the suppression of like certain monasteries uh, you know mother abbesses were quite powerful previously yeah. their power kind of gets curbed over the 150 200 years after trent uh and the i'd say the third force is actually like the colonialism right mm-hmm. so catholicism at this time you know, in the Middle Ages, I mean, Christianity is inherently a universalist religion, but in the Middle Ages where, you know, there had been kind of this settled boundary for centuries of, you know, the Christian and Islamic worlds, there's a somewhat moving frontier, but for the most part, Europe is Christian, the Middle East is now Muslim, and you, you know, Christianity had been geographically bounded for a long time. But with the new world getting discovered, and then, you know, colonization in Africa and Asia... I think there's this like very palpable, renewed sense of universalism yes. with Catholicism, right? And so these, these
0: sort of global, right, global
1: universal. It's global, and these the this, this Tridentine Catholicism is now being practiced in largely the same way in Japan, in India, in Portuguese Africa, and across the Americas and in Europe. So and it completely that, makes
0: sense that that would precede this sort of, for a priest at least, that this would precede the idea of universal reason and enlightenment.
1: Right. Well, and I, I think for probably a lot of people uh, involved in the Enlightenment, I mean, it, you know, even people who are opposed, you know, conceptually to religion, someone like Voltaire, it's like, I, I think that these patterns of thinking are like pretty important, you know, and you can kind of, you can see how like worldviews can shift, but there's these logics that transfer between them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and But, but for Gregoire, it's a much more direct transmission. And in fact, he sees this, Universalist Tridentine Catholicism as very linked to the universalist Republican, you know, enlightened revolution that he ends up being a part right. of. I would say,
0: and this this leads to sort of he, he's very he's very he's a true believer in this, and he's even wearing his priestly robes,
1: Bishop, yes, bishops, robes and bishop's robes, yeah, yes. because he you know what one of the things that happens is um, the uh, I think it's under the Republic already. It may have been a year before, actually, but, you know, through the course of the revolution, uh, the civil constitution, of the clergy is established. And what this basically does is it's a radical, it's a state-directed radical reform of the French church. Um, So a lot of the religious orders are suppressed, pretty much all except for the educational ones, um, the ones doing school, uh, running schools. Um, There's a seizure of a lot of church land and clergy have to swear an oath to the French state. Now, that's actually not as quite as radical as it seems to us now that, you know, clergy had already done that sometimes for the kings. Mm -hmm. Um, But this state is a revolutionary state. And so, you know, the with the clergy now being effectively agents of the new order, Um, That's a radical move. And in fact, you know, a a lot of clergy resist and I've seen different numbers on this, but it seems like something like half of the French clergy, mostly the lower clergy, uh, end up taking the oath uh, and sort of, you know, abjuring things like the dominance of the religious orders and about half the clergy, a lot of local clergy and especially local clergy in places like the Vendée you know, more far-flung places, but also most of the bishops refuse to take that oath. And Mm -hmm. so there is now a schism running through the heart of the French Catholic Church. And Grégoire finds himself as one of the leaders on the reformist and revolutionary side, where he sees the French Church as... More as as a, an autonomous entity, it, it you know he recognizes the pope, but he thinks that the French church should basically be self-governing, and he believes that this kind of like enlightened Christianity, reforming Christianity, should be the fundamental project that it is at this point in time working on. And a lot of his co-religionists end up seeing people like him as effectively schismatics, if not apostates, yeah, from the religion.
0: Okay, yeah. There's also this kind of so there's this there's this period where he's a he's a true believer in the ability of the revolution to bring about this universalized state on the model of Catholicism in some ways, but he quickly I mean, encounters for, for some, him
1: Catholicism for him right his, not his, not his, for the, the everyone yes yes in his, this.
0: His, that's sort of his preceding model for how it should be, but he quickly runs into some uh, obstacles that that bring about disillusionment with it.
1: Yeah, I mean, obstacles might be putting it (laughs) a bit mildly. Uh, (laughs) You know, I mean, what what effectively ends up happening here, right, is that the the people who really take charge of the revolution, I mean, and so, you know, maybe maybe this gets us sort of to um, what what we could focus on building out that I I start in with the piece, but I think is an idea that we could could run with more. um, The revolution ends up, at the start being something that is brought about by the men of the Enlightened Societies for the most part. But quickly other actors enter, right? So you have people who are media, you know, they own media, they're demagogues, you have former actors, you have people who are building these political machines not out of these well-selected Enlightened Societies, but out of you know, street gangs out of the the sans culottes, mm-hmm. the who are the kind of urban lower classes, uh, who are kind of weaponized a lot of the time to carry out violence. Yeah, they're not on, reading Rousseau or anything no, 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 <laughs> no, and and in fact, um, it, it's kind of fun. Like you, you recognize uh, a, a lot of the figures in a way. Like there's this guy Hebert who who runs a a, a newspaper in which he kind of he writes under a pseudonym and. Uh, under the pseudonym, he's kind of this, like, you know, regular sans-culott guy, and he's, you know, very vulgar, and he mock, you know, he he compares the queen to a prostitute. Like, you can kind of think about, you know, like, the guy who says it as it is, right? Like, we have this figure, that's a media figure today, it's been, since, ever since then, for 200 years, we've had, like, these, this mode of doing media, where you're very vulgar, clickbait, tells it as it is, you know, man of the people, Um, You know, and the voice he takes on is this kind of like crusty old man who doesn't take shit and, and, you know, doesn't believe, uh, you know, cynical and this kind of thing. So it's very familiar. And then as now, it's super popular with the people. Yes. And so these people are entering and the, the revolution, it becomes clear, like there are these rules to power and in the revolution, what you have is a very insecure form of power, where, you know, one day you have the ability to promulgate laws, and the next day, there's a literal, like, army of Sangkulat at your door, like, holding you by cannon point and telling you that you're going to do this other thing instead because one of your colleagues whipped them up. Like, these things literally happen. You, you know, you have even before the Republic is formally declared, you have these mass killings of prisoners that happen because there's, uh, you know, they have to round up all the traitors to the revolution and now the prisons are full mm-hmm. and now you have, you know, you get these committees. I mean, this is, I would, like, what's called now the September Massacres, right? It's this this turning point, I think, in the revolution um, where the Jacobins kind of incite the crowds. And so you have these, you know, quote unquote, people's courts, that will drag these political prisoners out and you know based on i guess crowd tempo effectively will either declare them free and let them go and in fact a lot of the king's household that had been arrested was just let go in this kind of you know spirit of like public mercy yes. and then people with much fewer so called crimes against society get sent into courtyards where mobs like literally like kill them and like you have crowd killings happening of right, prisoners right. And so, like, this this starts getting out of control very quickly, and the result is that the people who are able to maintain sort of order and the, you know, steer the course of events are the ones who are the most willing to be ruthless, and to use terror to, like, really control the, this, like, unleashed popular mm-hmm. um, chaos.
0: So, this is what's kind of interesting to me about Grégoire, is like guys like Talleyrand and Lafayette, he has, like, this impressive longevity throughout the revolution. Mm-hmm. He doesn't uh, ever seem to have any very close encounter with death, or or uh, I'm sure he was being harassed by political enemies to some extent. But uh, Well, he, he does have to... some close encounters with death.
1: I mean, this is the, he, he, he's at the, as I say, or as you mentioned, I think he's at the front in Italy, he gives speeches to troops as, you know, um, as, as cannons are firing at them. Uh, and at, at one key point, he's he later in the revolution he's told to denounce his religion under pressure from the kind of radical dechristianizing faction and he's seated at the front of the assembly that's expecting him to be about to do that he says no he refuses mm-hmm. and as he returns like mean, he's he's pretty sure at that point he's about to be beheaded like the next week or something mm-hmm. and he it ends up being that his political allies are able to sort of save him by opposing his own political enemies. But there there is a lot of political luck, honestly, involved. I mean, Gregoire is a political animal. Like, he, despite his fanaticism, he's willing to compromise at key points. And he, you know, his name appears on documents that, like, nominally he opposed, but in, clearly in committee supported yeah. for political reasons. So yeah. he's not, you know, he's not a totally naive idealist. Um, but, yeah, I mean, as, as a result of that, had the terror gone on much longer, I suspect he might have been killed. But uh, sort of fortune was on his side just enough that he's... he's And he also retreats, you know, not, not physically, but he ends up becoming a lot quieter in the assembly, in, the, in right. the final stages of the revolution. He buries himself in his work and in the committees that he's sitting on. So he's able to kind of get out
0: of the limelight when things are treacherous. Um, and he even has this kind of... Uh... This nice alibi when the uh, when the king and queen are executed because he's not even in Paris at this time. Uh, uh, right, right, yeah. I mean, this to me is actually one of the greatest examples of his sort
1: of political, you know, animal nature. Um, he he. So Gregoire is actually the one who uh, introduces the motion that abolishes the monarchy, and I mean his his rhetoric there. You know, we must destroy this word "roi," king. Uh, kings are in the moral order; what monsters are in the physical mm-hmm. order. Uh, the, the story of kings is the martyrology of nations, right? These are all sort of, this is all rhetoric that he, he, he brings out. And, you know, I, and I actually, you know, this is one question that I still have, is I was never really able to place where this, like, strident anti-monarchic sentiment comes from. Like, it doesn't seem to be there in his early life, and then at some point it rears its head and it's, like, visceral. And it's it's unclear to me where that comes from, but he acts on it. And you're right. So he's he is out of the country. Uh, you know he's doing the work of the revolution in in Nice and in Italy uh, when the king is executed. Now, how would he have voted? Um, he later claimed that he was in favor of um, imprisoning the king, but not killing him. On the other hand, his name appears on letters where. There is, there are calls for some, for an execution. Uh, He claims that, you know, like, it's unclear whether he had assented to his name being put on there. He has another letter where, you know, there's, there's a call to sentence the king, but he actually scratches out the explicit call to kill him. Uh, You know, at at certain points he's actually speaking that he's against the death penalty for, like, in principle. Uh, And so he doesn't want it for the king either. Uh, But he... There, I mean, and it may, it may, it, it may not even be that he had some unified conspiracy. It may literally be that he's talking to some people and he's persuaded that maybe you should execute him. Yeah. And then when he's alone and reflecting on things, he's like, "Oh shit! Like maybe this is a bad idea." Yeah. There's like a, so,
0: there's, there's there's a there, especially in a in the political climate of the revolution. I'm sure there's like private notions that you hold, and then there's public ones.
1: Yeah. Yeah. yeah no. And I, I I don't you know, I suspect that if he had been there, he probably would have abstained from the vote. That feels mm-hmm. like a Gregoire move. Mm-hmm. Um, however, his as far as his enemies are concerned, and you know, especially after the revolution when the royalists end up returning to power, Gregoire is a regicide, and and his enemies call him a regicide for the rest of his life. And so, Gregoire continually relies on this alibi that, well, I wasn't even there when they took the vote on that. I never voted to kill the king. I've never said we should kill the king, yes. uh, and and so on. And and that's sort of his alibi for why he's not a regicide. I think the reality is uh, he certainly did nothing to stop it and and honestly, like I when you're a Catholic, you know you you get exposed to what's called scrupulosity, like a scrupulous personality. Mm-hmm. And one way this plays out is like you you think something might have to be done, but you know it's wrong and so you find ways to like effect it to happen without technically assenting to it. Right, it's a psychological mind yeah, game yeah. that you Interact, sort of play. Yeah. yeah, and so honestly, like to me, this is me psychologizing, but I see a bit of it there. Where I suspect he probably thought it was somehow necessary to kill the king, but he also had this kind of like moral commitment that you shouldn't do it, and so he's sort of trying to balance these things. And yes, yes. what we see there is that playing out.
0: Okay. Yeah. So what what exactly is is his career looking like after this crescendo of the revolution? like what it, what is what it, what happens to the sort of uh, leaders of the terror and who comes after them and and what is Henry grvarre's work and role as the, as the time to go on
1: yeah so uh, you know during after the terror ends he's he's pretty he's on the outs effectively um he ends up at certain points having to sell books to survive. And his luck kind of stays fairly low until Bonaparte comes and establishes the empire. Um, under Bonaparte, you know, and people people view Bonaparte somewhat as this unmaker of the revolution, right? Like, but this is not really true. And part of the way that this plays out, in addition to him just institutionalizing a lot of revolutionary policies, is that napoleon brings in former jacobins and former radicals into the new order yeah. and particularly into the imperial senate and so gregoire becomes a senator um and he's in fact eligible for like the title of a count um in in the new you know the new bonapartist nobility that, that napoleon tries to create which he refuses mm-hmm. um so he remains this this defender of the republic and, and kind of later french republicans end up that becomes his legacy that like his continual defense and his his person serving as a rallying point for younger Frenchmen. I mean, because you know, especially by the time you're getting to like 1815, 1820, a lot of you know any Frenchman under like 25 literally doesn't even remember the the old order. It's mythology, right? It's mythology. That. It's it's and and yet they've grown up in a lot of chaos, and so this like elder Republican this idealist mm-hmm. who's, you know, very attractive to young, younger, you know, younger Frenchmen who are sympathetic to the revolution's ideals. It helps to kind of preserve the cause of republicanism in France and in other countries too. And so, like, you know, in his later years, I, I'd say that a lot of his role is this. He, he acts as a preserver of the republican cause in France, and a promoter of it in other countries, particularly in Haiti and in South America, um, his his writing and his, his personal encouragement of revolutionary leaders becomes very important. Yeah. Um, and it, it helps to kind of link them, right? Because the French Revolution, and I mean, maybe we should talk about this a bit more, the French Revolution and its mode and its ideology becomes a legitimizing force for new regimes around the world exactly and so Gregoire is a figure by which a lot of these guys actually join like the direct lineage right mm-hmm. so rather than just copycatting the revolution they're actually engaging directly with people who carried it out and being guided by them yeah so that's a lot of his later life and I mean when he dies you know it's as an unrepentant republican and an unrepentant supporter of what was called in the constitutional church. And in fact, the, the 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 new archbishop in Paris refuses him the last rites, and so he has to kind of circumvent him. Uh, and this you know this kind of sim- not ideologically sympathetic, but sort of pastorally sympathetic priest ends up giving him mm-hmm. the last rites in in violation of the bishop's orders. But at his funeral, uh, his funeral becomes this kind of. Meeting place, you know, thousands and thousands of people come, and it becomes this kind of moral, you know, morale booster for the French Republicans, who at this time are living under a monarchy again. Mm-hmm. And in fact, right, France becomes a the you know, when the Third Republic comes into being at the end of the nineteenth century, uh, about what is that at that point, like forty years or so after Guevara's death. Um, a lot of people involved in that will have been influenced by or spoken to or students of Gregoire in various ways. Yes. So, and I mean, France after that point effectively stays one or another kind of republic from then on. So, you know, the, 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 the republican form of power in France, and I sort of use that phrase very intentionally, does not endure ultimately.
0: Yes. And so, even though it, perhaps like the very specific, historically contingent ideology of revolutionary France and regeneration specifically of Gregoire, even though that is specific to its moment in time, this sort of language and even methods of execution of say modernization and other kinds of revolution are kind of replicated around the globe, and either they're invoking Gregoire directly, I know you you mentioned that uh, Ho Chi Minh, calls him, I think, the The the, apostle,
1: he calls him the apostle of the liberty of peoples. Yes,
0: yes. And, uh, but that's, you know, that's, that's such a, that's such a funny kind of like a link because Mm -hmm. they, they, especially considering Vietnam is a, you know, was a colonial, uh, property Mm -hmm. of, of, of France, right? Um, what would you say would be like the way that regeneration kind of morphs? Mm-hmm. as revolutions across the world maybe adopt a more like uh national liberationist or, or communist uh, proletarian bet and yeah kind of escapes the uh, i think and context.
1: it's and it's beyond it's even be you know I, I think that gregoire the easiest link is obviously with these kind of liberationist and, and maybe later on socialist movements but i don't think they're the only ones and so you know earlier i said that regeneration is it, it's it's A very useful concept because there is this basic pattern right sickness to health is the way that I describe it but the meaning of both of those words is like infinitely variable and I think that that you know and for for analysis that's a weakness but for ideology that's a strength right Mm. you can adapt that kind of thinking to any context effectively and uh and including context that Gregoire himself would have opposed, so to to me, this is actually like a very interesting part of this we We have a revolution, we have this revolutionary ideology, and so then there's this question of why and how does it succeed? And I you know something that's been interesting me more and more is the you know the the early and kind of hot, let's say high modern periods uh, where you have all these elites kind of reconstitute themselves. Uh, either as Republican states, or as, you know, sort of enlightened monarchies, or as socialist regimes. Um, Throughout them all, right, we we end up getting very similar patterns of like how the state functions and operates. What you usually have now is not really personal power. Um, You have a state that is a republic in like the broad sense, right, where individual members are officers of the state. They aren't members in their own right they're the minister of something they're the official of something right that the they each hold office within the state right they aren't there sort of personally yes um and i what i find fascinating is that that actually ends up being that ends up enduring as a regime type and in you know you look at south america for example which had been not just you know a spanish kind of imperial society right very diverse uh very in form of these kind of you know very personal forms of power that last even to the modern day um in government and organized crime and so on like a, a very unlikely place for this kind of like republican modernized form of government to arise and yet almost every country i think every country in fact in south america is a republic and even through coups right, in Chile and in, Ar- uh, in Argentina, in Brazil, you have coups happen, but even the coup periods, right, it's done, you have a professional military, it's usually done with legitimization from civilian elites from the Republican order, and it's usually phrased in, you know, in this very, like, in the language of Republican legality, right, there's a suspension of order, there's a state of emergency, mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, okay, while well, we have the, the, the generals are going to kind of take care of things for a while, while the emergency lasts and things like this, like, this is the sort of language that these places use. And I mean, in the case of Brazil, in particular, um, if anything, the the military period was like more hesitant to use that power than the civilian period of their dictatorship. And so it's it's fascinating to me that this kind of, this Republican organization of elite power ends up actually being really enduring. And so that's one side of the equation. The other side that you're asking me about is, you know, the the ideology of regeneration. And I think that these things end up parting, you know, they don't always part ways. Sometimes they stay together, but they're, they're distinct. And I think you can see that they're distinct because there are contexts where they actually act against each other. So in the case of Brazil, the, the sort of, you know, progressive uh, abolitionist, kind of these idealists of a regenerated order, they tend to be more sympathetic to the monarchy uh, of of the Brazilian empire, especially Pedro II, who was the guy who led the abolition of slavery. Mm -hmm. And in Brazil, the republic is introduced not by revolutionaries, but by reactionaries, by um, particularly like coffee farmers and, and these sort of oligarchs who are unhappy with the abolition of slavery and a bunch of the other reforms. And they end up circumventing and overthrowing the, the emperor and establishing the republic explicitly to prevent this kind of transformation of society. Mm. So we, we see that these are like very different ideologies. And to me, the regeneration ideology becomes most effective to establish states, whereas the republican ideology maintains states. And so hence, some, they sometimes work
0: together and sometimes against so each other. So this is kind of interesting because, you know, we talk about Napoleon as maybe like a regime builder. At the same time, he has this very complicated task of ideologically integrating the revolution and the republic with this new imperial mode. And, you know, Napoleon as a specific figure is someone who like maybe is wouldn't have been useful in a revolutionary context because mm. someone like Gregoire, who was very ironclad in his will and his beliefs, ends up having this sort of impressive longevity and legacy he inspires people to follow. And the way that Napoleon does this is more so through political flexibility that maybe is better at executing the goals that Gregar would have set out to accomplish in the first place.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and this is, you know, the usual history of revolutions, right? And of, of, of new states. Uh, Often the people who begin events don't finish them, right? America is actually a kind of weird, somewhat exception in that way. And yeah, I mean, in in the case of Gregoire and and you know more broadly of like these enlightened societies, to me the distinction is that you you in fact have you know I've sort of highlighted two logics here. I think there's actually a third one. So that is the culture of the enlightened societies themselves. Mm-hmm. And so there, I think that high selectivity, because if you think of the Enlightenment as fundamentally a social fabric of norms and, and ways of doing knowledge generation and things like this, selectivity is important. And it, it, by nature, it's not a political mass project, you know, what social fabric is like that, right? So the idea that Gregoire had that you could just extend the fruits of that, of that fabric to the country without a fundamentally different logic doesn't make conceptual sense. It's not that I think that Grégoire was trying to like include the whole country in like the making of encyclopedias or something. I mean, for him, it was that well, this new knowledge, like, we have to implement what we've learned in throughout the country. But that is a different logic. And you know, the the language that you get from a lot of the revolutionaries, you know, like fraternity and, and love between citizens, mm-hmm. they are replicating the language of the enlightened societies. And like, if anything, you know, I think the Jacobins become the most aware that actually the language of like the Roman state, which they love to draw on, is is more effective. Um, I mean, I, I find them to be a fascinating group as well, because like Gregoire, they are moral fanatics, right? like you read someone like Robespierre and he does i mean he, they are willing to die for their cause right when the the kind of three leaders um including Robespierre and 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 Saint-Just in particular uh of the terror get executed like very famously you know none of them really try to escape once they're there and Saint-Just who's a young guy he he's the guy who kind of He's one of the most, like, fanatical political representatives to lead the Republican armies, and he's infamous because he, you know, he executes uh, soldiers for retreating in battle, and um, he's one of the most strident, you know, he, he calls for the killing of the king, right? He's one of this most radical faction of the revolution. And when he's executed, Saint just walks proudly to the guillotine. Mm -hmm. And I think that, like, that moral fanaticism is interesting, too. I didn't address it as much in this piece. But it's of the same type as Gregoire, but I think operating on a different logic, one that's more explicitly embracing that, no, we are dealing here with something like a classical state-building project, not with the expansion of the Enlightenment.
0: So I I think this move between... There's this quote in your article, The the Sweet Intimacy of the SPS, this private intellectual society that Pergoire is forming his own ideas in. And the attempt to broaden that and make the French public itself and the French nation have that kind of fraternal bond is kind of uh, what drives a lot of Enlightenment figures in some way. And you know, it may not necessarily take this intellectual basis, but that sort of fraternal feeling is what underlies, I think, a lot of national feeling, right? The idea of some sort of like, you know, Mm -hmm. participation in a common project, Mm -hmm. you know, on one hand, the Enlightenment and 19,000 page dictionaries and encyclopedias, or on the other, the sort of like material, you know, the the economic and moral regeneration of a a country and a nation, which involves, you know, actually consolidating it through, through language and so on. So how what is the continuity of this sort of more intimate ideology? And like what are what are some what, what is it encountering as it moves into this public sphere? hmm.
1: Yeah, I mean, so I generally, you know, like there's probably an entire piece we could do here. My read of a lot of these the modern revolutionary ideologies, and by that I mean everything from the French Revolution to, you know, we're here in the Habsburg lands, you know, the nationalist revolutions. Nearly all the nationalist revolutions were also of the sort where you have a, a somewhat enlightenment-derived state-building project that ends up appealing to the same classes that are already participating in this kind of enlightenment and, and the, the kind of cultures that are in succession to that. Um, so I, I do think that as time goes on, the revolutionary ideologies get increasingly delinked from that sweet fraternity type of, mm-hmm. you know, er- earlier enlightened speech. And I think that effectively what you see happening, right, is there is this awareness that, you know, all, all these ideologies, like the, the general form that they take is that, you know, there, there is a kind of unjust result of history that must be corrected. Yes. That correction involves in some way the participation of all of society, but through the mediation of an elite, which will carry it out, right? right? and like, There's always a revolutionary cause. There's always, yeah, there's always a sort of vanguard, and you know, sometimes it's Manzini and Garibaldi and the Italian armies, uh, sometimes it's the Bolsheviks, sometimes it's Bolivar, uh, and 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 his you know and like the the people running Gran Colombia. Sometimes it's uh, I would even I think Zionism is actually also an example of this. Sometimes it's you know the uh, the the kind of Jewish uh, paramilitary groups. Who it is is you know changes a bit, and you do get forms where at least the public presentation of that vanguard is very minimalist, right? So, um, with with Spanish anarchists or the Paris Commune, for example. There is definitely an attempt to actually make the public participate directly um, in a lot of ways. But usually I think the realities of power move things such that the kind of active participant leadership realize that, that they have to effectively take the role of mediators in their ideology or of or of vanguards. And so I think what the the form that this really takes, like these modern revolutions, become ways to justify and coordinate state building, right? And the result of all these revolutions, like, you know, across nationalist, socialist, or whatever, liberal is usually a new state form. Sometimes it's a new republican state, and in fact, usually it's a new republican state, Mm -hmm. uh, but also a new ruling ideology and a sense that there's been a break with the past. The reason that that's a bit of shadow play is that you have to look at who's carrying out the revolutions, and this to me is one like the most interesting things here, right, because what you actually usually see happen is not really a turnover of elites in the way that the revolutionary ideologies present. So even in China, right? We, we had a piece on this by um, Daniel Rasmussen on the persistence of elites. Yes. I mean, and China is like one of the most radically implemented forms of revolution, like right? full Maoism for years and years, where you have, you know, landowners killed and torn out from their properties and, and so on. After years of Maoism, um, you know, within about 20 years of that, these old elites are kind of returning to their place. But in fact, even before If you look at a number of the revolutionaries who were carrying out the malice thing, they had come from these kind of lower elite backgrounds. So Mao Zedong, for example, his father had been a wealthy peasant, right? So he was a social climber, you know, he wasn't right from the elite families, but uh, his father had like, you know, bootstrapped his way up to a degree. Among, you know, he was in terms of wealth on par with a lot of these guys and socially interacting with a lot Mm -hmm. of these people. Um, one would think. And so, uh, you know, Mao, Mao himself kind of comes out of that background. And so you, you look at the elites carrying out revolutions in, in, in Russia, in Italy, uh, in France, in South America, they are inevitably coming from this kind of like, often a colonial elite class or sometimes educated natives people who have interacted with the institutions of power and know how to operate in them. And what usually happens is the revolutionary ideology becomes a vehicle for this kind of like lower elite to displace often foreign elites who are ruling from abroad, sometimes to overthrow and kick out local higher elites and establish a new regime. And, you know, sometimes it's able to be a kind of, you know, middle low alliance against the higher Sometimes they actually end up having to fight off high and low forces on both sides. And this happens in Italy, for example, where uh, a lot of peasants end up taking the side of their kings because they're kind of, they see this as part of like the Catholic Italian filial duty. in yes, a sense. And it's, it's
0: often very common that the, the actual threat to the peasant is, is seen as his as his lord. The king is always like the the one who comes. Yeah, we well, the the and... businessmen
1: trying to haul him into the the factories, right? I right, mean, right. the in 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 Russia, you know, the, this whole like if only the czar knew. I mean, you know, if only the czar knew, if only the dear leader knew, or whatever. Like that's usually a, a bit of a cope, right? Because I mean, leaders rule for a reason. I think leaders usually have some idea of what they're like you're not going to stay a leader very long if you're literally ignorant of everything that you're like, you know, um, subordinates are up to. But from from the perspective of, you know, a, a local peasant, or especially if you've been trained to, you know, if you're kind of a believer in the general mythos of the, the kind of the king or the leader or whatever, I, it's probably easy to fall into that
0: way of thinking. But I mean, there's you know. this interesting aspect too where there's a degree of elite persistence but it seems to me like they these are usually the revolutionary cadres are usually made up of of people in a social climbing position so there's mm-hmm. a meritocratic basis but when they uh when they thin the ranks of the upper classes so to say there is still like a lot of aristocrats from that old order who end up hanging around yeah a lot of the lower nobility in russia specifically ended up becoming uh, members of the Communist Party if they didn't leave the country and they were able to suppress their class backgrounds and, and did they hide their backgrounds? I think this often involved name changes, I think mm. it often involved sort of obfuscation of origins a lot of the time, but at the same time these are people who had resources and you know political acumen right right yeah and uh, this is something they had in common with these rising elites but there's always a commonality there's in defection. the fact there's elite defection. This was even the case during the French Revolution. Yep. And there's, uh, yeah, there's a surprising amount of persistence. Mm-hmm. But well, there's also some, there's like an infusion of new blood. That is yeah. really what's going on here. One of my
1: favorite uh, examples. So I mentioned earlier that, um, you know, the king's cousin is, is one of these sort of reformist nobles. And I, I don't sort of tell the whole story in the piece, but there's actually kind of um, a very funny result uh, to his defection. So, you know, the Duke d'Orlon ends up actually voting for the death of his own cousin, the king. Right. So Mm -hmm. he he defects the most radical side of the revolution. And um, he ends up changing his name, actually, as as you sort of said. So he he takes the name Philip Egalité, right, a very revolutionary name. And he ends up on the guillotine eventually, but not for the reasons you might think. Right. It's like, oh, he's an aristocrat. Well, I guess that's going to happen. But he's actually, you know, I'm sure he had enemies for that reason, but he, the reason he actually ends up getting caught up in the killings is that his son, Louis-Philippe, who eventually becomes the Orlanist king of France, his son and a company of people end up going over to um, uh, interact, I forget if they defect, but they, they go over to the Austrians, and this is seen as treason on his part. and. That treason ends up, you know, th- there's there's a law passed where basically like all those who are related to traitors themselves have to be tried. Mm-hmm. Right, or seen as suspicious. Well, this is so kind it's of his son's treason that gets him killed. Yeah, this is
0: interesting because in a way that makes sense because what distinguishes the world before nation states, when there's just aristocracies that preside over their holdings, over their dynastic holdings, they are one class of people when the revolution happens in france the entire aristocratic world is coming together and seeing like what what is to be done yeah and, and the execution of the king is a is an epochal shift in how uh elites treat each other right because yep. you know i feel like the it's common, shocking it's yes.
1: shocking to all of europe
0: yes. that this would happen um no you're
1: you're right uh and i but i mean in addition to that right it's like what is um what is the basis of elite power even, right? A lot of these aristocrats have already kind of been kicked from their properties, right? The, there's a centralization under particularly Louis Fourteenth onward where a lot of these aristocrats have effectively already lost the real basis of their power, right? They're running on title. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you kind of have to wonder, like, I'm sure many of them are, are aware of this. They're like one act away from being stripped of title and um, reduced, you know, to, to powerlessness. Um, well, what if you transfer, uh, to something else, right? A different basis of power. And in this case, maybe that's, you know, this like popular revolutionary form of power, especially if you're confident that you have the connections to pull it off, you know? Uh, it, it would be interesting for me to like read some of the correspondence of these like reformist aristocrats who become revolutionaries and see if any of them are more honest, you know, mm-hmm. and, and kind of go into detail about their thinking.
0: You know, I, I wonder if this has a lot to do with their, their, their financial situation at this time too, because one of the great coups of the Sun King is that he's basically taking the historically very independent, very fiercely militantly independent French aristocracy, and he's concentrating them in Versailles, in the capital. And from there, he's able to basically centralize power. One of the mechanisms that ends up happening here, and I think also in Russia too, around the same time, is that much of the uh, conspicuous consumption that the aristocracy does to participate in court life, racks them up a lot of debt. Yeah. And so they're basically subsisting off of money that is commonly that everyone understands will never be Aid, but it's mm-hmm. taken from the from the crown so they're kind of in this financial situation where maybe transferring monarchy is a, a, kind of a uh, it's the opportunity for a jubilee right
1: yeah well I don't know if it would have been a jubilee it's more like you know there, there had been pressure put on the nobles to start paying taxes and I mean even you know a, a, again like the nature of these so-called absolutist monarchies Louis was not in fact able to get them to pay taxes, right? And there were these bodies, right? The parliaments, which were judicial bodies that were able to block Louis's motions to try and get this to happen. I mean, that's why the 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 uh, estates general are called to begin with. And, you know, uh, to me, I think that there's a lot of like popular and even folk history about this era. Mm-hmm. And what you actually want to do is look at the real power structures, look at the actions that were taken and who took them. And if they failed, why? And what you get is like a way more complicated picture of power. Now, that same complexity and like barriers to understanding how power work existed for people at the time, right? Especially if you were in the lower classes and didn't have any power of your own. Um, so for an aristocrat who already knows that there's checks and balances, so to speak, on the king yes. and ways to block them, uh, and and for a priest, right, a reformer priest who already knows that bishops take oaths to kings sometimes. And that, you know, I mean, in France in particular, um, it's not as if the Catholic Church was like super independent from the state. I mean, the king had a lot of power over which bishops were appointed. So when the revolution comes and now you have, you know, in, in the early period when it's like, okay, we have these assemblies checking the power of kings and we have um, the church more directly under the state, like conceptually, those aren't actually big leaps. What's radical about it is the way that those are used to carry out transformations of society. And that's being done because of the motivating ideology of the revolutionaries, which is why I think that that's important. I, I think that looking at the ideology that motivates elites is actually important because it does affect elite action, right? It's there's a sort of cynical re or you know, people will dress it up as this kind of like pure material analysis or whatever of power. But the fact is that what elites believe about the world matters because yeah. you know, that influences how power is
0: used. And that, that that's also executing that's that's also influencing their method of execution. Yep. And I think yes. as you know, the French Revolution is a perfect example of this. Perhaps that says something about their their models of how the world works in Finland, right?
1: Yeah. And I mean, you know, it, it, later on, you know, when, regi- when the new regimes are consolidated, you know, at various points, and even, even under the First Republic, um, the, the Jacobins don't just, you know, purge and kill people to the conservative side of their program, they actually manage to kind of corral and execute people who are trying to out-radicalize them. Uh, and that's, you know, they're very much aware that li- the consequences of ideology, but they're also convinced that they are the rightful representatives of this, like, popular revolution. And so they obsess over making sure that their decisions are encoded in law and are extensions of law. And in fact, at the very end, maybe you can wrap up with this, at the very end, when Robespierre is purged. There is an attempt by him and his allies to try and take back control, and, but the problem is, they are all committed to the belief that the convention, uh, right, that this this National Assembly, is the they they are the popular will manifest, mm-hmm. and so there's this question that faces them: how do they, how can they possibly like try and out. You know, and it's like, do they declare the national convention itself now illegitimate? And you know, there, there, there is this. It's weird because on the one hand, you could say, well, they, you know, just have to take the bet that they can get the soldiers moving and tell them, you know, they'll get rewarded. Like, there's all these cynical moves they could have yes, made, pure power politics. all the pure power politics they could have done. And yet, at the end, there, when they know the guillotine is probably around the corner, they're actually obsessing. They're, they're, they're crippled by this, like. How can we go against the will of the convention? How can we possibly publicly legitimate that, right? Mm-hmm. And, and as I said, like, earlier, right, they, they do go to the guillotine, and the, these guys go, like, bravely, in a way. Like, Saint-Just, there's a famous scene with Saint-Just, right? This, this young, like, afterward, I, you know, he would sometimes get called the archangel of the terror, right? He, this persona of youthfulness and purity, perfect representative of like the heroic young Roman citizen and as he's going to the guillotine there's like on the wall there's um hanging this copy of the uh later constitution that the republicans create and Saint-Just had played this leading role and so he looks at and he says I created that and he goes to the guillotine with his head held high right and that's like that sort of fanaticism I think is almost like it's hard to even find future revolutions where it gets replicated to that degree but I I think that you know you you cannot reduce that to the terms of like um, pragmatic power politics right. that's like a spiritual will motivating him
0: All right I think that's a good place to end off Ash thank you for the great discussion thank you you can read Ash's article The Apostle of the French Revolution at PalladiumMag.com. And you can also uh, subscribe to receive our latest edition of the print, pladiummagcom slash subscribe, with the theme being the garden plan. That's Palladium 7. Uh, I've, so, you know,
1: at, right before we, we did this podcast, uh, I've been taking a look over the proofs. I've, I feel like I've said this for everyone, but this is an incredible print. There, there's uh, stuff in here you have not seen before. And the concepts in here are, you know, we, we, we did a lot of conceptual development, I would say, on this issue. And I think the fruits are are going to be evident for yeah, those of you getting a beautiful it.
0: photo shoot in there. The cover art is great and uh, extremely high quality articles as well. All right. That's all for now. Thanks, guys.